Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Bellisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations. In this episode of the podcast, we talk with alumna Dana O'Neill who recently wrote a book that chronicles the history of the Big East Basketball Conference. The book was published by Random House. It's available online and in bookstores across the country. So how long was the book process? Like, when did it begin? And, and did you know it was beginning, or did you start with the intent of a book all along? It, yeah, I knew it was beginning, beginning. I got lucky. A book agent actually reached out to me to write the book. I wish I could say I was brilliant and said, oh, we should write a book on the Big East. I had written a story um, for The Athletic about all the crazy coaches, coaches meetings in the Big East. And this book agent reached out to me on Twitter. He's like, hey, I think there should be a book done on the Big East. Are you interested? And I was like, there isn't one? <laughs> like, what? So once he hit me up, I was all in. Um, so I started working on it. We, we, you know, we had to put together the formal proposal that was back in like, gosh, I don't even know, 2019, I guess, like that Christmas, like we started and then go to New York and shop it around to publishers. And then, you know, at the same, like, you're kind of like, well, I got to get moving. So, you know, the problem was, of course, I started to do this thing and then COVID hit. So my intent to go up and down the coast and talk to all these people kind of digressed into a lot of zoom calls and things like that but I got lucky that um I did see Lou Carnesecca before everything shut down because I don't think you can do Louie on a zoom um and then um you know I got everybody else either the phone or the zoom so it was about a year and change I guess altogether how much do the I mean the relationships through the years help make that work I mean it's one thing to do zoom with people you don't know it's another zoom thing to do zoom with the people you've dealt with for years right yeah, it was so much easier. I mean, you know, I know Jim Beheim, I know Jim Calhoun, I know John Thompson Jr., I knew Louie, I know, you know, Jay Wright and TJ Carlissimo and, you know, all the major, Mike Trangisi, the big, big players that you need to do this book, right? I had existing relationships where not only could I be comfortable to do an interview, but I could also say, hey, I want to do this book. Are you guys in? Will you, you know, will you talk to me? And they were all in, you know, Rick Barnes, Gary Williams, Rick Pitino. So that was that had to happen. And then from there, you know, you go out to some of the players and some I knew and some I didn't. And, you know, you kind of use, hey, I got your number from so-and-so and um, and dial it back as, as far back as you can go. So that, but yeah, I, there's no way I could do this if I had tried to do this earlier in my career or without the relationships I had built over the course of my career. Who was, who was your, your biggest get, like that you were surprised that, that talked and, and who did you, were you unable to get? Well, the one I was unable to get the Holy Grail was Allen Iverson. I tried. I tried everything up to like John Thompson III sending out a bat signal. Like we were like, I, I tried everything. I just couldn't get him. Um, and I was bummed just because, first of all, I find Allen to be fascinating. And obviously he was such a unique part of uh, the Big East. So that was kind of a bummer. You know, big gets, I think the two that stand out, um, Look, John Thompson Jr., I've known him, like I said, forever, but you can't write a book on the Big East without John. And I am very grateful that I spoke to him before he passed away. Um, and, you know, because he's just so interesting and he has such a unique perspective. So he was a big one. And then, like, people like a bit player, not bit player, but, you know, Michael Graham, like, he 
had a really sort of tempestuous relationship with the lady, got through that punch in that game, and he ended up not finishing after Georgetown because he didn't have the grades. And there's a lot of water under that bridge, and I wasn't sure how he'd be willing to talk about it. He was very open. So I thought that was a really good, important interview because he brought a lot of depth and perspective to the situation that he was in and to what Georgetown was. Along with the basketball, or maybe more importantly than the basketball, the Big East at that time and what you're writing about was about people, characters, personality. I mean, it was, I mean, Michael Graham's a great example. I mean, it's, there's basketball fans who know, who can picture him in his mind and know, but all those coaches were, were characters. I mean, how did that affect the book and how did it affect the league more importantly? I mean, how much, yeah. how important was that and what the Big East was and became? I think it was instrumental because look, I mean, the league took off in 1979 kind of out of nothing, out of Dave Gavitt's brain. Like he saw this thing that nobody else did. And I always say like the product on the court was amazing. Like none of this, like if the games stink and the players stink, it doesn't matter, right? You can have all this great theater and if the games are lousy and not terribly competitive or the teams aren't very good, the theater is, nobody cares. But you had these great games and these great players and these blood baths on the court mm -hmm. that then off the court, you had these crazy people that are literally like chasing each other down back hallways and cursing at one another because they're convinced that one of them is going to, you know, one up each other, you know. Gary Williams tells a story about literally chasing Roly Massimino at a game at the Boston, Boston College because he was convinced Roly was going to go have like a quiet chat with the officials and get them on his side. I mean, crazy stuff. So that was so much a part of the league. It was kind of like, what in the world's going to happen today if I tune in? And for the book purposes, like for this to be interesting, I didn't want it to just be a narrative like this happened, this happened. You need stories. You need to go behind the scenes of these monstrous events that we all know about and get people to tell stories. And God bless. I mean, this league has so many epic storytellers. I mean, you could listen to like, you know, Bill Raftery, for God's sakes, tell a thousand stories, right? So that made the, the book so much more entertaining. It wasn't just this dry run of games. It was like, okay, here's the game. Now here's what happened that you didn't know during the game. And you took the story that felt like, and it did kind of like a start to finish through the league's history, but kind of worked your way through those points. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the way I work and the way I write, like I'm, I'm relatively linear. So I needed an organizational structure that I could wrap my head around. And I wanted it to be a chronological history, but I didn't want it to be boring. Right. So I thought, all right, let's lay out the moments in this league from start to finish, like inception to crash and burn and reform, if you will. How do we get there? And let's see if I can string a narrative through those moments. So it's basically like, here are the moments that you know. Now we're going to go backwards and say, here are the stories behind those moments and the depth of like a particular team or a person, and then go forward again. So that, that for me as a writer worked. And I think it works for the book because that's how people think of the league is they think of certain games, the sweater game, the Michael Graham throws a punch, six overtime. They have those moments in their mind, right? So it actually relates to the reader as well. Do you, what was your first Big East moment or first Big East moments? Do you remember games you covered or, or incidents that you were at that just were like, oh, shit, this is happening here right now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone asked me that. I can't, like, I remember as a kid growing up watching games, right? I can't remember, like, a specific game. I remember watching big Monday games and being like, holy cow, you know, my brother went to Seton Hall. So I was all into the Seton Hall bandwagon, you know, in 1989. I, I was remember watching that as a high school or no, a college kid. My brother was so excited about it, but I'm excited kind of watching it too. 
But as a reporter, I mean, there were a lot, but I was at the six overtime game. That was ridiculous. I mean, it was, I felt like afterwards, I remember the next morning waking up, like, I'm pretty sure I didn't get that story right. But then how in the world are you supposed to get that story right? Um, so I was there, I was, the, you know, Kemba Walker breaks Gary McGee's ankles and does his run, the Jerry McNamara run for those. I mean, there, there were so many moments. I hate to pick one, frankly. Is there, it felt like, and maybe it was the age we were when it happened, right? Like this was the biggest thing in the world, yep. right? It, it, this was bigger than anything else and Big Monday. Yep. Could the, could the Big East as it happened, happen again? Is it happening and we're overlooking it? I mean, it just felt like this was the first that that happened and, and there's this, this mythology that comes with it. It was actually reality in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't know if it could because the difference was then, right? Not every game was on television. Like that was such a big part of it. Like the TV package that ESPN offered because ESPN needed content because they were brand new and the league needed a place to show their games made them must watch TV because there wasn't that much else to choose from, right? Like that was, that was the game of the week. You know, Mike Hopkins, who was the Syracuse assistant, tells a story about growing up in California, you know, Pacific time and riding home on his bike extra fast to make sure he got home in time to watch big Monday game. Now every game is on TV, which is great. It's great for the sport. I'm not, but it's almost like there's so much inventory, like, well, what's the must watch game of the week? You know, you'll have your pop-ups. We're going to have, you know, national big games like UCLA is going to play Gonzaga, those kinds of things, but it's different. It's just, it's not, it's not the same. And, and frankly, I think it's also, we've lost sort of that regionalization and that be true to your school, be true to your conference thing a little bit. Kids play all over the country. It's not as big of a deal to high school kids to kind of represent their league as much as it is to represent their school. Back then, like they were all pretty biggies proud. I think there's a difference now. And it's not bad, it's just different. Are they now, when you talk to them, what did they remember and, and, and about what happened then? And what are their, are they still biggies proud to have been a part of it? 100%. And, and, and... Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing. You talk to like Chris Mullen and Patrick Ewing and uh, Roosevelt Bowie and Louis Orr and Michael Graham and Gene Smith and Charles Smith and all these great players who came through the Big East. And they, first of all, they remember every moment because it was like the glory days, but they are mm -hmm. so proud and aware of what they were a part of. They, they totally get how lucky they were, how amazing those games were, how special that conference was. Um, they hold it in such high regard, you know, certainly there's, you know, pockets within their own teams, but there is such a kinship, I think, between all of those players and, and all of those coaches still. I mean, they still bust on one another. They still joke about it. There's just such a really neat relationship. And I think that was fostered by Dave Gavitt. When Dave Gavitt formed the league, his message to his coaches was, you can kill each other behind closed doors. I don't care. You can come to our meetings and curse at one another and accuse each other of anything you want. But out in public, you have to put the league first. So if you get eliminated from the tournament, you've got to be Biggie's proud. And they were. They absolutely were, which I'm not sure coaches are like that anymore. I'm really not sure. Some are, not all of them. No, that's true. That, that, that feels true. I mean, I remember it was it was Georgetown, Virginia was like a pay-per-view game when, when Samson was a Virginia. <laughs> right, exactly. It wasn't as part of the package, but that was a big thing. And, and you got this feeling that the Big East was rooting for that. hundred percent. They understood that, that if one succeeds, they all succeed, right? They, they understood that Georgetown playing Virginia 
in that situation was good for the Big East. They understood that um, if Seton Hall got better, it was good for the Big East. It wasn't a threat to you. It was better for the league and that that would only raise your, your game. And I think, you know, I think people still believe that, but it was so ingrained in them that um, they just rooted for one another. It was amazing. So when you when you're going through the process of the book and then start writing, who's your audience and what's your responsibility? Like you're hearing all this good stuff, like it's it's in and they're invested and you're invested because it's it's good stuff. How do you to whittle through all that and, and make sure you're telling the story that is the right story or the story that happened? It's really hard and a little overwhelming because there's so many stories that you think to yourself, I'm sure I forgot something, right? Like you can't possibly get them all in, and I'm sure. There's another person, like there was always going to be another person I could talk to. Like, there was, it was a, it was a endless limit of sources, but at some point you got to turn a book in. Um, so my, my thought was like to make sure, A, I got it right, like, that, that all the details were right and the memories were intact and to get the players that really, the most important people for each story, but then find the bit players that added flavor. Like I was really excited to get the guy who played the Dome Ranger at Syracuse. Like he was like this mascot before they had the orange, they had the dome ranger. Like his insight was kind of a fan perspective. And I thought that was kind of fun, but I felt like such a responsibility to reflect the league properly. I think that was the most important thing to not just get the stories funny and right, but to reflect sort of the underbelly of the league, like what was going on, why it worked, why they supported one another and get that right. And the audience is like, you know, look, this is a nostalgia book. So there's people of that generation of our generation who I know are gonna wanna read it. But I hope that like people that are younger who maybe don't remember it as well, or they remember it at sort of the tail end when you know it was kind of falling apart, go back and understand why people were so disappointed when it did fall apart and why that, you know, that end with the six overtime game and Kemba's run, like why that still resonated. So, you know, I think the audience I hope is pretty broad. Big East still exists, but it doesn't exist like that. Like, was six overtimes the, the end point? And did people know it at the time? Or was there some other, I mean, I know there's been so many machinations of in and out, whatever else. But when did the Big East, as you know it, for book purposes end? Yeah, I mean, I kind of ended it purposefully at the at the six overtime game. I, I did a little bit of a gloss over with Kemba's great run with, with UConn in 2011, because that was, you know, ridiculous. But that six overtime game to me represented everything that was the old Big East told in new form, right? It was just this classic, ridiculous, only in New York game, only between these schools that have such a history that that could happen. That to me is why that was a good ending point. Um, and you're right, it's not the same and nobody tries to pretend that it is. I mean, it, it's just not. But I do think the cool thing is when the league kind of folded and reformed, it kind of went back to its roots. It's kind of like, all right, well, this is Dave Gavitt's vision reborn again, basketball first, um, schools that align in, you know, in appearance as well as thought, um, support one another, everyone, like they are pretty collegial within the league, they really are. So it kind of was cool that they reformed in, in sort of their own image. Um, but, you know, I remember being like really sad at the last Big East tournament thinking like, I mean, the last one in its old form thinking like, I need to take a pause. I can't cover this for a couple of years. Like I meant that, like I was in my head, like I know it's not going to be the same and I'm not discrediting what's going to be, but I need to walk away from this tournament because it's been such a fun, I, I, 
I used to like going to that sometimes more than the NCAA tournament. So I was like, I need to walk away for a couple of years and give myself a little distance. And I'm sure fans felt the same way. Like it's not the same. So let, let me breathe a little and come back and revisit it. Yeah, I mean, because it was the garden, there was just something special about yeah. that. And people wanted to come there. And there's like the guy I got one of the guys I know who still follows Pitt and covers them and well, covers them as a fan, knew his pizza joints, knew his week by where they right. were going for dinner when they came to the garden and, and in New York. So there was just that flavor of them owning that event and, and copies basketball in, in the hundred percent. I mean, every, every team had a college bar that for all the fans, you know, went, the coaches had their own bars, the refs had their own bars, the sports writers had their own bars. Everyone convened. I know fans sometimes just like trying to choose, do I go to the New York for the week or do I go to the NCAA tournament first round? They often chose New York because the games were epic. They knew that they were going to be great games, no matter what your team situation was, it was going to be a great game. And um, yeah, and New York was just, it's New York, it's the garden, right? Like it, it sounds like trite, but it is true. I mean, it really is the epicenter. There's a reason the Big Ten moved its tournament a week early once to play in New York. There's a reason the ACC has come to New York. I thought it was really smart. Maybe the smartest thing the new Big East did was to make sure that they got the garden back because that's theirs. And that is their footprint and that is their image and that is their legacy. But it's also just so important to kind of how they are perceived um, and to keep that relationship alive was critical. The book itself, in terms of the process, again, just to jump back, like you write, how does it go through editing? How does it like, what is that timeline like when you, when you think you're done or you're waiting for stuff to be done? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, like, so I had a deadline to turn it in, of course. And so that I, I remember asking my editor, do you want to read this like chapter by chapter? How do you want to do it? And she was very much, um, I'll read some chunks. Like she was, so she read a really big chunk to start. Cause I was like, oh, I, I want you to at least read a big chunk because if it stinks, I need to know before I turn the whole thing in. So it was sort of like, here's a, you know, here's like the, we really worked hard to get the, 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 forward in the first chapter and set that tone right um and then go forward and backwards and a lot of it was like laying out chapters like there were a lot more chapters that were in there to begin with that we kind of condensed like it was kind of like okay how 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 deep do we need to go mary my editor was the one that said um i don't think we she said like i don't think we want to tell a sad story here at the end so she said, let's end it someplace good and then do the rest of, let's kind of smush the end and the reformation together. Because I originally had it all plotted through the collapse, the rebirth and all of that. And she said, I think this is a nostalgia book. I think we need to, ha we need to have a happy story here, which was great advice. So there was a lot of give and take, um, a lot of back and forth. She was, a, she's a great editor. Um, you know, I, I, I had Dick Girardi read the whole book because Dick Girardi, who worked at the Philadelphia Daily News is my mentor and he knows the league as well as anybody. I needed him to kind of be like, sign off on, you got it right. Did I make any mistakes? You know, like mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and then of course there's fact, checker, fact checkers at the publishers that they, they go through and check, check everything. So it's, it's a process. It's a process. It was fun though, in a sick way. <laughs> When it comes out, what's that feeling like for you? I mean, again, newspapers before and stuff published online, but what's it like to be able to, to pick it up yeah, in your hands and know the box it was, is coming? It was pretty cool. Cause you know, the step-by-step, step, like you're seeing like the galleys, right? You see them all laid out. Like, oh, that looks really cool. I like the font. And then you see like a picture of the cover and like, the cover. I love the cover because they, 
they got the old Big East font to use on the cover page. Like it's the original font that the league used for its its logo. And the picture of Patrick is just so emblematic of the league. So seeing the picture, I'm like, oh, that looks really cool. I'm really excited. But when it comes in, you're like, I made a book. Like, that's really cool. Like, and then it's just, you know, you're nervous. Like, oh my God, I hope people aren't gonna be like, well, this is just all right. Like she missed, you know what I mean? Like, ah, it didn't tell me anything. Like you're nervous about the reception of it because you put a lot into it. I mean, I, I'm still sitting here at my desk in my office with my files of, because I'm, I'm kind of like very organized. I have folders of every single interview I did labeled, like, you know, from in alphabetical order, like Val Ackerman, all the way to Lisa Zanekia, the, the Big East editor. And I have their, their interviews printed out and shoved in the files. And I still haven't taken them down. Like, I don't know why, in case someone calls me and says the guy, you know, that's wrong or something like that. I'm just, even though it's published, I'm just like, I'm going to hold on to those just a little bit longer in case I need to pull them out. And someone says, wait, where did you get that? So like, yeah, it's been, it's been great. It's been fun. So what's the reaction then? What have you heard? Very positive. It was actually really nice. Just yesterday, I saw Dan Gavitt, you know, Dave Gavitt's son, who works for the NCAA, and he hadn't read it yet, but he said, I've heard nothing but great things about it. I was like, okay, phew. Dan Gavitt likes it. I'm good to go. Jim Calhoun, I spoke to him last week because he retired and I was having a conversation. He's like, hey, I've read the book. It was hilarious. He's like, I didn't realize that you were in our meetings. Like, it feels like you were there. I was like, okay, Jim Calhoun likes it. I'm good. So I've gotten really positive feedback. I think people are getting, you know, what I was trying to tell what the purpose of the whole book was. So it feels good. You know, like I'm glad that the casual fan loves it, of course, but to get sort of sign off from people that matter. Mike Changisi read it. Mike was a big one. Like I needed Mike to love it and Mike absolutely loved it. So that made me feel really good too. How did you get in those meetings? I mean, how much, how do you pull that familiarity out of people to be able to, to share that back? It's hard, you know, um, it's basically like, tell me about some crazy things that happen in a meeting and then someone tells a story and then you have to go to the other person and get them to tell the story. And you almost kind of recreate the dialogue with separate interviews, right? Like, oh, you know, I remember Rick Barnes told me a story about Louis Carnesecca dropping his hearing aids and crawling around the floor trying to find his hearing aids at the time that those are supposed to be casting a vote. So then I have to ask Louis if that actually happened. And I asked, you know, Rick Pitino, do you remember that happening? That kind of a thing. Or Rick Pitino and, and Roly Massimino practically came to blows over a, a book, over a ball deal, like arguing about how much money they should each get. Well, Roly obviously isn't here to tell me anything, but you know, Certainly, um, again, like PJ Carlissimo was in that meeting or Gary Williams was in that meeting and Mitch Puanagaro, who was one of Rolly's assistants, can oh yeah, I remember that phone call and da, 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 da. So it's like, you kind of have to back and forth. Every time I spoke to somebody, I kept saying, odds are I'm gonna have to call you again. I'll try not to wear you out. So it was a lot of back and forth. Do those, because you're covering basketball all the time now, does that level of, personality and I mean you could have taken all those names you just dropped and, and made a mini Mount Rushmore of something for college <laughs> basketball right yeah does that exist now and we just don't get it as much we don't see it because like the plethora of stuff or was it again just the right time at the right or were they got that good I mean I think you know so certainly we have coaches of that caliber who are that mythology you know that that massive level right Mike Krzyzewski Roy Williams we have still that you know Mount Rushmore of talented coaches I don't think we have the personalities like we used to. I think coaches are terrified now between, you know, in the current age, social media and being called to task for saying things out of, you know, out of turn or what have you. 
money, of course, there's a lot more money to lose. I mean, if you look at some of the contracts these guys signed back in the day, it's laughable. I mean, it's like next to nothing, how much money they were or weren't making. So there's, there's a fear of, of being called on the carpet and losing a salary. Um, I think people are just a little bit more wound tight about basketball than they are, you know, like there's a lot more at stake. Like coaches get fired a lot more quickly than they did back then. Um, you know, people stayed with coaches. I mean, they wanted to fire, fire PJ Carlissima for years and they didn't. They stuck with PJ Carlissima and then he takes them to a final four. So, you know, I don't know that that, that runway exists for coaches anymore. And I think they feel that pressure anymore. And the last thing they want to do is put themselves in a position where they give someone cause to be angry at them. So I think we've, I think we've lost some of that personality, frankly. Happens during COVID, you're writing this, right? There was still a basketball season happening. There's still life happening. I'm always impressed when someone's able to balance all that stuff. Not surprised <laughs> in your case, but impressed. How, but how, how did you, how, what was your plan and how did you um, activate it, accentuate it, make it work to, to make all that happen, right? Yeah. So, you know, basically I told my editor that I would do as many interviews as I could from January to March um, of 2020, thinking like I was going to be busy in March. And of course, thank COVID, I wasn't so busy in March of 2020. So the good news, bad news was I gained some time back to do interviews. And I basically wrote most of it in the summer because things are quieter in the summer for me seasonally. So that was kind of my, okay, I'm going to grin and bear it and sit here at the beach and, and write as much as I can. You know, the challenge when you write for a living is the last thing you want to do when you get some time off is write. <laughs> it's just like ugh, sometimes, but it was so much fun. Like I told everybody that while we were in the middle of COVID and everyone was middle miserable, I'm like getting people in the eighties to tell me hilarious stories. So the interviews were so much fun. Um, organizing them, like I said, was really, really hard. But, you know, yeah, like, you know, basketball happens, the real job happens. You just, what do you do? I mean, I'm fortunate my kids are older, so they're not like, you know, worried that I'm ignoring them. Um, so, you know, they understood what I was doing. Um, but it was, it was tricky. I ended up making this crazy outline. I kind of forgot about it where I took every interview. Like I told you, I have all those folders of interviews and I would read them. And I made an outline on, I wrote it, like I typed it, chapter one. And I would just put like, you know, Ackerman page two of meeting Ackerman page two of her interview and put a, a kind of a, a note to what that quote is. So I realized like what quotes fit in what chapter, which made it a lot easier to write too. So that took a long time to go through all of my interviews and kind of parse the stories out where they fit. Um, so there was like, I don't mind writing. I still like to write. I still enjoy the act of writing. So that part's never that hard for me. It's more preparing to write. That was hard. When you got on a run, I mean, did you schedule times when you were going to write or did you just sit down and write? And if you were, if it was, you want to roll, you kept going. How did, how did yeah, you basically I, I would kind of, you know, um, do as much as I could on a morning. I like to work in the mornings just a lot. Generally speaking, I, I, I do as much as I could in the morning and, and kind of plot it along. When I wrote the book on Villanova a few years ago, Jerry Brewer, Brewer, who works at the Washington Post, gave me great advice, I thought. He said, if you finish a chapter, start the next one, even if it's like 200 words. He said, because it's going to flow from one to the next. He's like, so that will make you pick up easy, more easily than having to go back and say, what, was, what did I just finish writing? Now you, you're kind of, have, you're started on the next one. That was such great advice. So like I think you put the bed, the, the chapter on, 
the first chapter and how they've formed and you can go into the next chapter. It's just like, oh, okay, now I'm on a rhythm when I go back to it. But sometimes the hardest thing is like, what, what was I saying? Um, so yeah, that was, that was the greatest advice I got, honestly. Is it too early to ask what the next book is? <laughs> yes. Now, I, I don't have one in my mind. I mean, I thought about a couple ones. I did a story this summer on um, the old five-star basketball camp, you know, and, and that was crazy too, like equally crazy with some of the stories. And, you know, you got Patrick Ewing serving food as a, as a cafeteria worker because that's how he paid his way to go to five-star. Like what? Like, wait, what? Like Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan are your cafeteria workers. Okay. So I thought about that. I don't know if it's just too small. Um, I mean, I'd like to do another one. It's, I, I need to breathe a little bit. It was fun. Like I said, it's just a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So I'd like to do another one. And I think, you know, now that I feel like I have an editor, you know, within the publishing company there and an agent, like I have people that like know that I'm capable. So that helps too. But you're not going to not work. I mean, you're doing the athletic. It's not like there's, it's just nope. additional work that you're not going to do it for a little yeah. while. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I'm still busy with real world, real, you know, the real world. Certainly that's the other thing back to the real job. I mean, they were, the athletic was so kind and, you know, I mean, not that I took time that much time off, but basically my editor was like, Hey, you have like five weeks of vacation. I would suggest you take it this summer and go write a book. I was like, that's a great idea. And I did. <laughs> so he was very helpful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit belisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Belisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.